Hello and welcome to Mr. President from otrgold.com. This episode will begin after a brief message from our sponsors. Mr. President, starring Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer's Edward Arnold. Mr. President, at home in the White House, the elected leader of our people, our fellow citizen and neighbor. These are little-known stories of the men who've lived in the White House. Dramatic, exciting events in their lives that you and I so rarely hear. True human stories of Mr. President. Our Mr. President drama will begin in just a moment. But meanwhile, I'd like to say a word about the generation of American men and women who have found their greatest inspiration in the lives of the presidents of the United States. Their deeds are direction pointers for the American mind. People today are more interested than ever to know the intimate, interesting, and inspiring facts about the lives of their presidents. Now, for the first time in radio history... The American Broadcasting Company takes listeners behind the White House reception rooms and ballrooms glittering with gold braid and famous personalities into the privacy of the breakfast room and study where presidents are shown as individuals with human doubts, laughter, love, and faith. Mr. President is true biography built around the men who filled America's highest office. We invite you to listen now for our story and see if you can name the president upon whom this episode is based. Edward Arnold as Mr. President. Let's visit him in the White House. It is Sunday, and the old mansion is resting quietly after a busy week. We walk through the great doors under the presidential seal, across the foyer and down the long hall to the president's study. Oh, hello. Sit down, won't you? You know, sometimes when you make an important decision, what you're really doing is just gambling. It's a lot like flipping a coin. When the stakes are high, that's a pretty risky thing to do. But when you're faced with a heads-you-win-tails-I-lose situation, you've got to take your chances anyway. Well, that happened to a president once. Later on, of course, I'll tell you who that president was. But meantime, you may be able to guess. It was during my second term in office. Once again, war was blazing in Europe, and once again, it threatened the peace of our country. Increasing violations to our shipping and outrages against American citizens had forced us into an extremely grave position. And now, on top of everything, American lives had been lost in the Atlantic. Here are some more dispatches, Mr. President, about the uh, SS Chesapeake. Oh, thank you, Miss I wish I could bring you some good news for a change. I wish you could, too. They're trying their best to push us off the middle, aren't they? I wouldn't call it pushing, Mr. President. It's more like squeezing. (laughs) That's right, Miss Sarah. You know, I love the Atlantic Ocean, but sometimes I wish it weren't there. What? Well, what do you mean, sir? It gives us such a sense of security, false security. Oh. Why, if somebody starts a ripple way over on the other side, it can end up in a tidal, tidal wave right on our own shores. 
And that's what's happening now. Do you mind if I point out, Mr. President, that it's a little more than a ripple on the other side? Yes, that's true. But it was a nice figure of speech, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, Miss Sarah, we've got to face it. When two of your neighbors are fighting in the street in front of your house and you go out because you have to do some shopping, and after all, the street belongs to you as well as to them, you're going to get hurt, too. You, you can't unless you want to stay in the house and pull down your shades. Yeah, or try, try to stop the fight. But how, how can you stop a fight without first getting into That's it? That's my problem. There's a great our own house right now. And we've already gotten hurt. Yes, yes, yes and Congress is demanding action. I've got to face, face my, my cabinet tomorrow. So, so I, I have to make a decision, Sarah. And, and it's heads you win, tails I lose. You sound very prominent. If it works, it'll save our, our country from war. And if it does, doesn't work? Then war is inescapable. And I will have been a failure. And so it seems only too obvious to me, Mr. President. And I am sure my fellow members in the cabinet feel as I do. We have no choice left. Go on, Mr. Garland. We have not asked for trouble. All the world knows that. But if we are to maintain our dignity and freedom as a nation... We must take some kind of action. Mr. President. Yes, Mr. Matthews. I should like to ask the Secretary of the Treasury just what kind of action he suggests. We have already made protests, vigorous protests. Uh, and they've failed. Do we have any choice now other than war? Oh, Mr. President. Mr. President. Yes, Mr. Garland. You have called this cabinet meeting together to discuss the most critical issue of our administration. And yet, during this entire debate, you've said nothing. Well, my apologies, Mr. Garland and gentlemen. I've been scribbling some notes on my opinions. I have listened to what you've said, but since there is little time to waste, and since I agree with you, Mr. Garland, that we must take action immediately, I've been outlining a special message to Congress, and I hope you gentlemen will approve. If we resort to arms in trying to solve our present problem, we will enter upon the second war in one generation. This seems to me to be the most tragic confession of our weakness. Is violence and not reason the only way in which we can settle an argument? Gentlemen, I think it is high time to try to introduce between nations a better arbiter than arms. Yes, we will have to use coercion, but let it be peaceable coercion. In other words, I recommend that Congress immediately enact a bill enforcing an embargo against all ships leaving the ports of the United States. Mr. President, you can't be serious about Mr. Garland, I was never more serious. An embargo? Why, it would never work. Our people wouldn't stand for it. And the belligerent nations would laugh at us. In fact, an embargo would be the real confession of our weaknesses and nations. Well, I'm afraid that I have to disagree with you, Mr. Secretary. I believe it'll work. After all, this is the last card we have to play, short of war. So you see, gentlemen, it must work. Come in, come in, Mr. Quincy. Good evening, Mr. Graves. Uh, sit down. I'm glad you could find time to come to see me. <laughs> a congressman should always find time to see one of his constituents, especially when he is a man as distinguished and influential as yourself, sir. You know why I sent for you, Quincy? No. You heard about the president's proposed embargo bill? Oh, that. <laughs> Preposterous. Well, I'm glad you feel that way about it. After all, I own a lot of ships, and I don't like the idea of them lying idle in the harbor. Well, I quite agree, Mr. Graves. The embargo would be ruinous to our country. And to my business. Uh, yes, of course. After all, the lifeblood of our nation is commerce upon the high seas. The economy of our people is based upon free exchange with other countries. If we should alter the natural fine, course... Fine, fine. I'm glad that you agree with me, Congressman. 
I'm sure that you will do everything you can to block the president's proposal. Be assured, Mr. Graves, I could not stand by silently and let the president strangle and starve our country with his insane plan. I can bring you some good news, Mr. President. Let me guess, Miss Sarah, let me guess. Congress passed the embargo. Yes, by an overwhelming vote, sir. Oh, that's fine, fine. With the entire country behind me, I'm sure the embargo will work. Well, there, there was some opposition. Congressman Quincy and a small block opposed the bill vigorously. Oh, they did? Well, if there weren't some little opposition, I'd begin to worry. The important thing is, we've won the first round. If we can keep our harbors locked and let nothing out and let nothing in... We will have quarantined ourselves against the disease of Europe. And also we'll have demonstrated to the entire world a new and bloodless instrument to take the place of war. Quietly. Who's there? Is that you, Tim? Well, who else do you think it'd be? Oh, have you got it? Sure, I got it. Made the ship four miles out, like you told me. Come on, help me unload. All right, all right, but be quiet. You know this is as against the law. Law? <laughs> what law? <laughs> Come in. Uh, Miss Sarah, would you please do about? No, I have them with me, sir. Thank you. Hello, Mr. President. Good afternoon, sir. Oh, sit down, gentlemen. I've asked you both here to discuss the situation resulting from the embargo. It's deplorable, sir. Well, I'm not at all surprised. I know, Mr. Garland. I suppose as Secretary of the Treasury, you've been following facts and figures. I'm a practical man, Mr. President. Of course you are, Mr. Secretary. That's why I gave you your job. Well, you know as well as I that the facts and figures are ugly. Goods are being smuggled in all along the coastline and borders. Ships are sailing without clearances and unloading their cargoes on foreign vessels anchored beyond the limit. It's unnecessary to cite the number of cases. There are too many of them. Is that all, Mr. Garland? Do we need any further proof that the embargo was a grave mistake? A mistake? Well, Mr. Matthews, as Secretary of State, what is your opinion on the matter? You know how I feel, sir. I agree with you completely on both the principle and the purpose of the embargo. However, I must admit that whenever a law invites such widespread violation then it is time to re-examine that law. Ah, you coming over to my side, Matthews? There is only one side, Mr. Garland, the side of our country. But I must point out that more serious than anything else is the fact that certain courts have refused to convict violators. Indeed, in some sections, there is practically official sanction of illicit traffic. There's no use in deceiving ourselves, Mr. President. Thank you, Mr. Matthews. Uh, Miss Sarah, may I have those letters now? Yes, sir. Here they are, sir. Thank you. Now, let me see. Uh, gentlemen, I still have faith in the embargo, but in the face of the violations and opposition you both have mentioned, I would be merely stubborn if I held to a personal viewpoint. Now, uh, this batch of letters is representative of a cross-section of the country. They are expressions of support from all kinds of people and from all points of the land. But as one example, I would like you to hear a passage from a group of shipbuilders in Plymouth. Now, let me see. Oh, yes, yes, here it is. Now, mind you, these are the people who stand to lose the most by what they are, we are doing. And what 
What do they say? Now, listen. We venerate the laws of our country. We respect this constituted authorities. We will submit to any probation necessary to preserve our just rights and independence as a nation. That's very encouraging, sir. Yeah, it's very noble, Mr. Matthews, but I don't think it's very encouraging. The simple truth is, Mr. President, that even before our country has felt the pinch, they're violating the law. Just wait a few more months until our merchants and farmers really feel the effects. It is my hope, Mr. Garland, that in a few more months, perhaps the effect will be felt so strongly on the other side of the Atlantic that whatever sacrifices we have made will be fully justified. I have already had evidence that our merchants are, are going to cooperate. As for the farmers, gentlemen, as you know, I come from a farming community myself. And I know of no group so aware of the power of an economic weapon. I have faith in the full support of the farmers of this nation. It is because of this faith, gentlemen, that I am determined to pursue our present course of action. In just a moment, we'll come back to Edward Arnold and Mr. President. Here is an interesting fact about history that you might not know. At the beginning of the 19th century, every country whose ships sailed the Mediterranean paid tribute to the Pasha of Tripoli for the privilege of using that sea. Not so the infant United States. Our whole nation was the first to challenge the pirates who tried to make the Mediterranean a private body of water. The Marines led the way and helped to win that man-sized skirmish for freedom of the seas, which in turn helped our nation to grow and prosper. That's an incident you'll find in every chapter of the Marine story. It's part of the great Marine tradition, and you can become a part of this tradition. The Marine Corps is now accepting a selected number of volunteers. If you're a young man between the ages of 17 to 29, perhaps you can qualify. The Marine Corps has advantages to offer you. For tradition and career, it's the Marine Corps first. Now, back to Edward Arnold and Mr. President. Perhaps you've already guessed who the president was in this story, but don't forget several of our presidents have faced the problem of maintaining our neutrality with Europe at war, and some have resorted to embargo. Later on, of course, I'll tell you who this one was. Despite the increasing number of violations of the Embargo Act, I still believe that the majority of the people preferred a non-military economic measure to a shooting war. However, I realized that the success of the embargo was in jeopardy. If those who were breaking the law were not checked, my whole plan would be doomed to failure. So I sent in for my Secretary of State, Mr. Matthews. You're getting better, President. I to say you've been riots and an affirmative to insurrection. Mr. Secretary, your department mission I want. It's already caused a considerable decline in foreign production. And that if the embargo were continued, it would eventually lead to a... Embargo is an effective weapon. Extremely effective, Mr. President. Not only against Europe... But again, you have told. Therefore, Congress legalize all means necessary to obtain full enforcement. Congress passed the embargo. Now they should either provide me with the means to enforce it or give it up. There's a great deal of talk about giving it up, sir. I know that. But, Mr. Secretary, we must not give it up. We must give it the teeth necessary to make it work. <laughs> Mr. 
Come in. Come in. Well, hello, Mr. Graves. Haven't seen you for some time. Come in, come in. You know where you could reach me, Mr. Quincy, if you had wanted to see me. But, Mr. Graves, I... And I'm not surprised that you didn't want to see me. You let Congress pass the President's embargo bill. That was bad enough. But what have you been doing since then? Well, what did you expect me to do, Mr. Graves? You're a congressman. Speak up. Loudly enough so that this law can be repealed before it ruins the country completely. But the President's already asking for further power. I don't care what he's asking for. As a shipbuilder, I'm using every ounce of pressure I can to get this insane law repealed. And I expect you, as a representative of my interest, to use as much pressure. Pressure, do you hear, Congressman? Pressure! Very well, Mr. Graves. I'll speak before Congress at the earliest opportunity on the matter. And I ask you, my fellow congressmen, why continue a law which the people will not observe and which they will not observe for very good reasons? Because it is a law which revolts every free-minded citizen of our nation. The president has the audacity to declare that he is trying to protect our liberty. What liberty? An embargoed liberty? A handcuffed liberty? A liberty in chains? This is not our kind of liberty. Let us arise and declare ourselves free men again. Let us tell the world and the president that we will trade with whomever and wherever we will. And, Mr. President, from what I hear, Mr. Quincy did everything but declare war himself. On me as well as Europe, eh, Miss Sarah? Uh, since you put it that way, yes, sir. Well, I don't mind his making war against me, but Europe, oh, that's different. Europe is a great madhouse, and I don't see that there is any bravery in fighting a maniac. That is why I believe that we have found a way of avoiding contamination and yet serving the cause of peace. Only everyone had the faith and vision that you have, sir, but the way they ridicule, ignore, and violate the law, it makes me sick at heart, sir. I know, Miss Sarah, but there are always a certain number of lawbreakers and troublemakers. What infuriates me is that men like Quincy and the special interests they represent encourage them. Why, they even make lawbreaking out of... make it out to be a virtue. Oh, oh, would you excuse me, sir? Yes, surely. Hello, Mr. Matthews. Oh, Mr. Secretary, come in, won't you? Uh, hello, Mr. President. Sit down, Mr. Matthews. Uh, you heard about Quincy's speech in Congress? Yes, Miss Sarah just told me. One of the most insolent speeches in the history of the House. But I can't believe that the people will take that kind of inflammatory nonsense too seriously. And if Mr. Quincy thinks that he can force me into changing my mind, he's greatly mistaken. After all, I've spent almost eight years in this office... And I have every intention of maintaining my convictions to the end of my administration. Mr. President, you bring up a subject that has been on my mind and on many others, too, I must say. Yes, what is that? There are many of us who believe wholeheartedly in your policies. And we think that that is the way the country feels, too. Well, thank you, Mr. Secretary. And with the world being in the precarious condition that it is, we think that these are the only policies that can save us from disaster. Well, naturally, I do, too. Then you <laughs> must carry them through yourself, Mr. President. I must what? You must run for re-election. You mean a third term? Why not, sir? Well, that's a great compliment, Mr. Matthews, but I believe that I've served my time. I'm tired, sir. I'd like to go home. As long as there is war in Europe, this must be your home, Mr. President. Well, thank you again for your confidence in me. But I believe there are many men who can carry out my policies in the future. The important thing is to be sure that what I've set out to do is not a failure. Then we can make the embargo so effective that war will no longer be necessary.
Well, Mr. Garland, you look more worried than usual today. Well, I have good reason to be worried, Mr. President. If we continue with this embargo, we may expect something even worse than a foreign war. What on earth could that be? Insurrection. Mr. President, won't you face the fact that the embargo act is a failure? Mr. Garland, I will only face this fact. It will be a failure if we don't enforce it. Good day, sir. Good day, Mr. President. Goodbye, Miss Fellow. Goodbye, Mr. Secretary. Uh, Mr. President. Yes, Miss Sarah. Uh, there's a man outside, a uh, Mr. Tompkins. Tompkins? It's our farmer, sir. He says... Oh, not Samuel Tompkins. Oh, do you know him? Oh, Sam Tompkins, of course I do. He's a neighbor of mine, a good friend, too. Well, then you'll want to see him. Of course, Miss Sarah, everyone I've seen recently has been discouraging. I need a breath of fresh air. I'd be delighted to see a farmer, especially Sam Tompkins. <laughs> sure, men, you can stay if you wish. Oh, thank you, sir. Mr. Tompkins, the president will see you now. Oh, thank you, ma'am. Come in, Tompkins. Come in. Good afternoon, Mr. President. Well, it's fine to see you. too much of your time, sir. I, I know you've got a lot in your mind. i just come down here to... Well, to sort of talk to you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for taking the trouble, Sam. Oh, no trouble at all, Mr. President. You see, me and the neighbors, we, we think a lot of you, and... We kind of have the idea that maybe you being cooped up here behind a desk and all has kept you from knowing just what's really happening. <laughs> well, that's one of the penalties of being president, Sam. You hear so much about what's happening that sometimes it's hard to tell what's the truth. Oh. <laughs> now, if I had uh, any sense, I'd gone out to see you long before this. Well, what for? Well, to find out how you farmers really feel about this embargo? Why, that's just what I come to see you about. Oh, now, no, no, look, sir, I... I don't know anything about politics or international affairs, but this this embargo hasn't done us farmers any good. But, Sam, you must understand that it takes time to make a thing like this a success. Yeah. That's just what worries me, Mr. President. It takes time. Too much time. Do you, do you mind if I tell you a story? No, no, go ahead. I'd like to hear a good story for a change. <laughs> well, then, you know my son. John, of course. Mm -hmm. And you, you know that he's a good boy. Helps me out fine on the farm. Well, sir, one day I sent him to the pasture to get a horse that I wanted. He was gone so long that I was afraid the horse might have kicked his brains out, so I went to look for him. Well, I, I found him. Well, go on, Sam. What happened to him? Well, sir, there he was in the field, standing stock still, with his eyes fixed on the ground like, uh, like in a trance. Well, I asked him what he was doing, and what do you think he said? He said, well, Paul, I saw a woodchuck run into that hole down there. So I thought I'd stand here and wait for him until he was starved out. But, Paul, I declare I'm almost starved to death myself. That's a very good story, Sam. Well, it's a true story, Mr. Preston. And that's what they was doing to the people. We're way wait out. We're starving ourselves. Oh, I hope you don't mind me telling you this. No, I thank you. Thank you for telling me. I thank you very much, Sam. Well, I said my piece now, so I guess that's all. I hope to see you soon down in our neck of the woods. <laughs> the sooner the better, Sam. Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye, <laughs> Oh, uh, don't bother to get up, ma'am. I, I can find my way out. <sighs> I'm, I'm glad you saw him, Mr. President. So am I, Mr. You know, it takes a real friend to tell you the truth. I wanted so much to believe in something that I was willing to deceive myself. I had to go to the people, or rather they had to come to me to tell me the truth. But, 
But it was the people, like Mr. Tompkins, that you were trying to help, sir. It's ironic, isn't it? They're the ones that have suffered the most, more than I had a right to expect them to bear. Well, there's one thing, Miss Sarah. You'll have to admit that when I make a mistake, I make a big one, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Do you... Do you really think you've made a mistake? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Perhaps the future will tell. I still believe the embargo was a good idea. Certainly any peaceful means for settling a dispute is better than war. But it's close to the end of my term when I don't want to lay down a policy that will be binding on my successor. Well, at least you tried a new way to settle a dispute. Yes, yes, yes. And someday somebody may find a way to make it work. You see, I knew that at the best it was a gamble for me. A sort of heads-you-win-tails-I-lose situation. But what I didn't know was that I was flipping a coin with two heads. Well, you've probably figured out by now who I was when all that happened. It really did happen, you know, and I'll tell you the answer in just a moment. Adventure comes naturally to Johnny Fletcher, and you'll just naturally go into a mild case of hysterics as he plays sleuth every Sunday night over most ABC stations. Johnny is the hero of Frank Gruber's famous comedy mystery series. And as his radio counterpart, you hear Bill Goodwin, whose broad sense of humor fits the role like the proverbial glove. Johnny doesn't go looking for trouble. He just seems to stumble into it with his sidekick, Sam Craig. Sam is one of the gentle people who can't understand why some people will really pull the trigger of a gun. But come what may, Sam sticks with Johnny, and together they've tracked down a rogues gallery of crooks, racketeers, killers, and con men. Listen then when the adventures of Johnny Fletcher are aired Sunday night over most ABC stations. Now, here again is Edward Arnold. <laughs> time of our story was 1807, and Mr. President then was Thomas Jefferson. At that time, Great Britain and France, led by the ambitious Napoleon, were at war, and we were in grave danger of being drawn into the struggle. As a matter of fact, it was this situation which eventually led to the War of 1812, but President Jefferson tried his best at this time to avoid this danger. He was a pioneer of economic pressure, and the first of our presidents to so strongly attempt the use of peaceful means to prevent a war. Though his efforts failed and the embargo was finally repealed, he boldly and eloquently instituted a method for peaceful solutions in place of armed conflict and actually set a pattern which is still used sometimes with more success by the peace-loving statesmen of the world. Come and see me again next week, won't you? I'll have another story for you about Mr. President that I'm sure you'll enjoy. Goodbye.
Edward Arnold appeared by arrangement with Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, producers of Julia Misbehave, starring Greer Garson and Walter Pidgeon. Mr. President was created by Robert G. Jennings. It is produced and directed by Dwight Hauser. Miss Sarah was played by Betty Lou Gerson. This story by Milton Merlin was suggested by incidents in the administration of President Thomas Jefferson. Music was composed and conducted by Basil Adlam. sure to listen again next week when the American Broadcasting Company and its affiliated stations bring you Edward Arnold with another interesting and factual story of Mr. President. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. <laughs>